0: The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 12 through 22. 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no res- resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are bound to be false We are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam will die, all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. May God be praised by the reading of his word. If we were to assess the state of Christianity
1: today, what would you say? What would be one of its major weaknesses? I think one of its major weaknesses would be the disconnect. The disconnect between what Christians believe what we believe and what we say and do. Doctrine and discipleship, well, all too often they operate in completely different spheres, don't they? As if our theology has no influence on the way we live, practice, and even share the Christian faith. Now, it's easy to point the finger at others, But not that long ago, I was personally embarrassed by a disconnect in my own life as I reflected on the times that I had shared the gospel with others. I started to notice something that scared me. I started to realize that I had actually failed to say much, sometimes anything at all, about the resurrection of Christ. As I quietly examined other Christians' I started to notice the same. As Christians, we tend to share the gospel as if Jesus died on the cross, and that's the end of the story. We ride a zip line from the crucifixion to repent and believe, contrary to the example that Peter set for us in Acts 2 and Acts 4. But the situation gets worse. It gets worse when we consider our churches. Despite the fact that we meet here on Sunday morning, the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned sometimes but once a year. Easter Sunday. I wonder if a non-Christian, an unbeliever, was to walk through the church doors. Well, if I didn't know any better... Would they think? Would they have any idea, in fact, that the Savior we keep talking about, the the one we keep preaching about, proclaiming, that he's alive? Perhaps it's unintentional. I have no doubt that it is, but it's to our own detriment that the resurrection of Christ has become a doctrine, sometimes of secondary importance. In a day when the gospel has become a a buzzword it's it's now cool to talk about the gospel. Well, I don't think it could be more ironic that the resurrection rarely factors into the gospel that we can't stop talking about. Do you see the irony? The reason why may be complicated but it's fair to say that we struggle to make much of a risen Christ because we have no idea why it's so essential for our Savior to rise in the first place. It turns out that there's not merely a disconnect between our doctrine and our discipleship. Our resurrection theology itself is, let's be honest, shallow. I came to realize that as I started to inspect my own self and the way that I shared the gospel. We, of course, affirm the resurrection. We affirm it, but sometimes we have very little idea why or what might be lost if, in fact, it never even happened. Well, it's my hope this morning to maybe in a small way, but I hope a significant way, remedy this disconnect that I am referring to by drawing our attention to Paul's logic, he, logic here in 1 Corinthians 15. And I would invite you to have your Bibles open, to be looking at the text as we are going to analyze Paul's argument. As central as the cross is to our salvation, and it is, hear me here, it is absolutely central What was accomplished at the cross is truly incomplete if that tomb is not found empty on Sunday morning. The resurrection of Christ is indispensable. It is indispensable to the efficacy of your salvation. It is indispensable because it is the very source, the legitimacy of, of your witness to a lost world. And it is indispensable because it is the very certainty of your future resurrection from the dead. Now, the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, was beset with problems. If you've ever done a Bible study Uh, through the book of first Corinthians you know this there were divisions among its own members cases of sexual immorality as well as ongoing arrogance and it doesn't stop there does it in fact as you read chapter by chapter you begin to feel almost depressed at the sight of this church that Paul though cares about immensely And to make matters worse, some Corinthians were confused, confused about certain theological issues that influenced the way they lived the Christian life, confused about what it meant to assemble together as one body, as a church. But perhaps one of their most, maybe the most serious theological error or confusion they experienced was a misconception concerning our own bodies, Concerning the future of our bodies, the resurrection of the body. Though the Corinthians believed, on the one hand, they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of them did not believe in the future bodily resurrection of the believer. Now, Paul doesn't tell us, but it is very likely that some Corinthians had, well, they had absorbed the, the Greek notion that the soul is immortal, but the body dies, it's burned, and then it's no more. Keep in mind that Corinth is located in that southern Greece region. Historically, culturally, it's Greek. Though in Paul's day, there had been a Roman occupation because of war, and so it was a Roman colony. But nonetheless, it has this very strong and famous Greek influence. The assumption in this type of mindset in Paul's day as he's looking at these Christians, the assumption is that the soul is superior to the body. In fact, the body, some would say, it's even a prison. It's a prison for the soul. Those of you who love the classics may be familiar with that Greek philosopher Socrates. His estimation of the soul is, became very influential, widespread for centuries. The soul, he claimed, in one of uh, Plato's works, the soul, he said, is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body, note this, as through prison bars. You see it? Death, for the culture around the Corinthians, death liberates the soul to enjoy immortality. To affirm a, a future bodily resurrection would have been judged spiritually immature. Such a we, we might call this dualism, this divorce between the body and the soul, the soul being elevated above the body. Well, it denigrates the material world that we live in. And it meant that Greeks and some Greek Christians had no, they had no conception, no category even for a body that could one day live again. A body that could be resurrected. But we have to say more. It's not just that they would have seen this as irrational. They would have seen this as absurd. 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 Many objected to bodily resurrection because it seemed completely illogical. How can a body be put back together after death? Perhaps you've heard these similar objections yourself today. And so the educated in society, well, they laughed at the notion unsophisticated primitive bodily resurrection that's implausible and not just implausible it's nauseating nauseating came across as repulsive because it, it assumed that the resurrection well that that's nothing more than the retrieval of a dead corpse others were so disgusted that they even rejected immortality of the soul, and instead said, "At death, you are simply annihilated." Well, pick your view. Either one married a fatalism to a hedonism. There's no hope beyond death. There's fatalism. So, let's live life however we want before death takes us. And there's hedonism. Paul exposes this mindset. If you look ahead at verse 32, you can hear it being echoed. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink. Tomorrow we die. There it is. What will the Apostle Paul have to say to those Corinthians who've bought into this conception, this mentality? Well, Paul has a firm rebuke of the Corinthians. It implies that the Corinthians were so strongly influenced by this mindset, at least in part, if not in whole, that... They could not think of any other possibility. Now, this is just but a footnote. But are we not so prone, before we quickly judge the Corinthians, are we today not so prone to absorb the beliefs of the culture around us? Consciously or perhaps unconsciously? Are we not so influenced by the the pressure to appear sophisticated, culturally relevant, accepted by the elite in society, accepted by the the received tradition. The last thing we want, let's be honest, the last thing we want is to go out there, to leave these doors And to look like freaks, even if it means being completely out of line with the gospel. All right, footnote aside. To say Paul is concerned is an understatement. As that passage was read, are you picking up on his tone? He's shocked. He's absolutely shocked. How can these Corinthians so blatantly, so illogically hold a belief that directly contradicts the gospel of our Lord? Paul's response can be characterized by that famous Latin phrase, ad absurdum. Literally, it means to or toward the absurd. Here is Paul at his best, is it not? This is Paul demonstrating point by point that if you deny a bodily resurrection, then everything absurd must follow, including the silliness, the futility, the fraudulency of your Christian faith as a whole. Paul intends to demonstrate that there must be an an unbreakable chain that connects the resurrection of believers on the last day to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to verses 12 through 13. Look there with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And Paul will repeat this statement in verse 16. Paul's logic is airtight, isn't it? If the dead cannot rise, then Jesus could not have risen either. And if that's the case, then the entire Christian faith is undermined. Starting in verses 14 and 15, Paul is going to start spelling out the consequences. Notice first of all, in verses 14 and 15, if Christ has not been raised, then we are proclaiming and believing the gospel in vain, even misrepresenting God. I find it telling that one of the first victims to fall prey to a gospel that is ahistorical in nature is what? Preaching. Preaching. Do you see that there? In verses 14 and 15, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is what? It's in vain. Now, why is it that Paul would first target preaching? Well, Paul is first and foremost concerned about preaching because, don't miss this, a dead Christ, a dead Messiah, a dead Savior means the very message He has proclaimed, the very message you've heard proclaimed, the very message we share with the lost, this message is not a message of good news. It's not. Have you ever had the experience, I know I have, of starting a conversation with someone who's not a Christian who then discovers you are a Christian one way or another only for them to assume a very different understanding of what a Christian is or perhaps you've seen this firsthand maybe you have a new job and when your new coworker learns that you're a Christian They hear you, you go to this church. They respond, oh, yes, I know your type. Or maybe they don't say it, right? But you see it in the way they look at you. I think you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes, I know your type. The last girl who worked here, she was a Christian too. She was all about church on Sunday and the rest of the week. She lived just like everyone else. How do you feel in that moment? Do you not, do you not cringe inside? <laughs> and if you've been through something like this, you know, don't you, how everything seems to work against you. They leave the room or the cubicle before you have a chance to say anything. And who knows what they then go and share with your other coworkers. You cringe inside. Because there's been What? A misconception, one that you probably have not had time to correct. Brothers and sisters, if, if that is the embarrassment that we feel because we have been misrepresented, can you even begin to imagine the shame? That we should feel not only for believing, but for proclaiming a gospel that is not true. With outstretched arms, we extend eternal life to lost souls. We are promising that we. Can come through on something that we have no ability to come through on. The promises we've made about salvation, about a Savior, they mean nothing. Nothing. This savior, we are telling others, has apparently secured life itself. Something that the culture around us is groping for, grasping for, and desperately can't seem to find. We are promising this very thing. Our preaching is a scam. A scam. And those who have placed their faith In this Jesus that we've preached, they have been duped entirely. Do you sense how serious this is? The Christian faith is not a joke. Do you understand? Do you understand what is at stake as you come through those doors on a Sunday morning? if there is no historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. And if there is no gospel, there is no good news to proclaim at all. Turn off the lights, shut the doors, and go home. That's what's at stake. And we, and I say this to myself and to anyone in here who wants to preach, we as preachers, we are not as bad as those prosperity preachers that that you see on TV who promise wealth to those who claim the name of Jesus. No, we are worse Or worse, why? We're not merely promising some short lived wealth in this life. No, we are promising life that is eternal, riches that will never end. We've proclaimed a lie, a lie. We've believed a lie. We are a lie. We are a lie. And what we've done, it borders on insanity. It's criminal. Secondly, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised then we are still in our sins and remain condemned. I have found that as a Christian, and Christians today, we may understand that the death of Christ, and I hope this is true, we may understand that the death of Christ is essential for the forgiveness of our sins. However, we often have no idea what the resurrection has to do with our right standing before God. We know that Christ has been raised and that this is important for some reason. But why? Why isn't it enough? Have you ever asked this question? With all the celebration of a risen Christ, why isn't it enough for Christ to die on the cross? Why do we need the resurrection too? Well, Paul is convinced that the forgiveness of your sins depends, it depends upon the, the grave being empty. How so? Well, remember, Christ's death, it's an atonement, an atonement. Christ substituted himself for us. He acted as our representative. Why? To bear our guilt, our condemnation. Remember what Isaiah says? He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. But listen, here's the question. Did he satisfy the wrath of God for you? Did he satisfy the wrath of Almighty God in full? And how would you know? How would you know? Answer The tomb is empty. It's empty. If the father did not raise his son from the dead, he would essentially be saying that the work of Christ, of his own son, his perfect obedience to the law, his suffering, unthinkable suffering on the cross, it is not enough. It's not enough. Nor is it acceptable. A dead Christ has not the approval of his father. The price paid is insufficient. The suffering experienced, it is deficient. But by raising Christ from the dead, the father is proclaiming to the entire world, well done, good and faithful son. In other words, the Father, he's putting that that stamp of approval upon the work of Christ. He is accepting the payment for our sin. He is accepting the, the perfect obedience of Jesus on our behalf. If we, if you, if you are here this morning and you are not right with God, Listen, listen to this good news. If if you are to be justified, then Christ himself must be justified. Do you follow? Apart from his vindication, we face condemnation. Charles Spurgeon captures the point that we are making He says, as the rising of the sun removes the darkness, so the rising of Christ has removed our sin. The power of the resurrection of Christ is seen in the justifying of every believer. For the justification of the representative is the virtual justification of all whom he represents. Is that you this morning? Is it any wonder why the Apostle Paul can then say, in Romans 4.25, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and what? We, we stop there, don't we? No, there's more. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so it's very appropriate for us to say that not only has Christ died for us, he has been raised for us as well. I love I love this truth. I love this reality. I love what one 16th century reformer said. <laughs> Listen to this. If, but if our sins were not able to hold him in death, which he submitted to on account of our sin, how much less are they able to hold us down against whom they no longer hold any jurisdiction? Do you you hear that? Because I don't know about you, but day in and day out, I feel as if they hold jurisdiction. What do you do in that moment? When you feel overwhelmed by your own sin, what do you do? You remind the devil he has no jurisdiction. And when he asks why, You don't have to say anything. You simply point to an empty grave. Number three, verses 16, 18, and 19. If Christ has not been raised, then we have no future hope of a resurrection. Listen to what Paul says. Then those also who have fallen asleep, do you know someone who has fallen asleep? Who you loved, they are with you no more. If they have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, says Paul, we are of all people the most to be pitied. I think this point gets at the heart of the Corinthian problem. It gets at the heart of our own problem today. You see, apart from the bodily resurrection of our Savior, there is no basis whatsoever for you and I to have future hope, hope in a bodily resurrection on the last day. Maybe that's news to you. I hope, if it is, I hope this will be tremendous news as you consider what lies ahead. If Christ remains dead, then death has victory. Our fate will be the same. There's no victory over our sins and there is no victory over the grave. Notice, though, the conclusion that Paul draws from this. It's depressing, (laughs) is it not? It's depressing. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied Do you understand what Paul is saying? We are pathetic. People, the, the world should feel sorry for us. Why? Because we have placed everything in the hands of a dead man. A dead man cannot save you from your sins. A dead man surely cannot raise you from the grave. He could not raise even himself. And if our hope is entirely restricted now to this life, if that reality is true, well, there's no hope at all. We know that because this life ends, there's death, and that's it. There's nothing more. Even our hope proves hopeless. There's another there's another aspect I think to what Paul is saying. If we move too quickly past these verses, I think we miss this. Why are we so pathetic? Well, it's also because, as Christians, our identity is wrapped up in our sufferings, our trials. They're unending, persecution even. Why? All for a risen Christ. One author said, if, if this world is all there is, anybody is better off than Christians. The world eats, the world drinks, and the world is merry. We suffer, we are slandered for the name of Jesus. Martin Luther put it very bluntly, in the face of this, who? would be so stupid? (laughs) Who would be so stupid to be a Christian if there were nothing to a future life? We live, we die, the end. Could anything be more discouraging? There's nothing to live for, but worse, there is nothing to die for. There's no hope, there's no life to come and there certainly is no everlasting joy. Praise God, Paul does not stop there and praise God, this sermon is not over because Christ, what does Paul say? Christ has risen. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul gets agricultural on us, doesn't he? When the farmer plants a seed, he waits eagerly looking for that first sign, that first sample of crop. This was called the firstfruits. What great excitement. Imagine being a farmer working so hard month after month, what great excitement you would experience when that first little green leaf rises from the ground. You look at it, and what do you think? My family's going to be fed this year. There's going to be life for another year. But it also was a sign... Not just an example, but a sign of what the future would bring. Because it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee of the quality of the crop that was yet to sprout. It's a shadow. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's a type of the great harvest to come. And likewise with Christ. His resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection of all believers on that last day. It's not merely an example to us. It's a pledge. It's proof. It's the guarantee of what is in store for you. It's precisely because Christ has risen that one day, every believer will receive a resurrected, glorified body. And I don't know about you, but that is Tremendous news. I find it ironic that the Corinthians had dived headfirst into some type of Greek worldview, abandoning any hope for a bodily future, elevating the soul instead, because Christians today do the same. In the face of death, we talk as if a disembodied existence is eternity. In the worst sense, too, is, is if we're going to be sitting on clouds, playing harps, to keep our souls in some type of blissful trance. Really? Is it any wonder that our children don't want anything to do with heaven? It sounds awful. <laughs> scripture does teach that at death our soul goes to be with the lord and yes paul says it is far better to be with the lord but nonetheless it is still an awkward state incomplete unfulfilled it's not the end of the storybook god created us body and soul and with that union ruptured by death it's unnatural It's temporary as we await the return of our Savior. Our soul does not remain in this state forever. It eagerly awaits a reunion, but this time with a resurrected, glorified body. If you are here this morning and you have trusted in Jesus Christ, life after death is an embodied state. As was mentioned earlier in the service, there will be a new heavens and earth. It does not get more physical than that. I have no idea what that is going to be like or look like. But Eden will be regained and not just regained, but regenerated as we live in the presence of a lamb we see. Resurrected whose scars we touch. But everything hinges, doesn't it? Everything hinges on whether or not you have been united to that lamb. Look at verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam was our first father. He was acting as our representative. When he sinned, all of us were plunged into sin and death with him. We've been credited his guilt. You and I have inherited his corrupt nature. And we feel it. We know it. With Adam, spiritual death has come to all of us. But not just spiritual death, physical death as well. Yet in contrast to that first Adam, Christ represented us in his obedience. He lived the perfect life we have failed to live. He died the substitutionary, atoning death we so desperately needed to be forgiven. And through faith in this second Adam, this perfect, stainless righteousness, The righteousness of our representative, our father, our mediator, it's given to us as a gift. It's credited to you upon faith. You think of a passage like Romans 5. Paul has no doubt he has this new spiritual identity in mind. But the beauty of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul goes a step further. He refuses to divorce your spirit and your body. Our identity in Christ means we not only receive Christ's spiritual life, but we will one day receive physical life. And he has promised us this, he has guaranteed this beyond words with his own actions by rising on that resurrection morning. So yes, all have died in Adam. Yet all those found in Christ shall be made alive. Brothers and sisters, are you not tired of death's mocking tone? Is she tired of it? Is death not relentless? It's relentless. It's pressing in until it takes your loved ones and then it knocks at your own door. Are you not weary? Does the fatalism of those Corinthians, does it not tempt you? Friend, I'm not here this morning to promise you escape from death's grip. I can't. It will come. For some of you, that day may be tomorrow. It may be today for all I know. But if your faith rests in the resurrected Jesus, I can promise you that death will not have the last word. Yes, each one of us will die, but we will rise to the the smell of fresh soil on that new heavens and new earth one day. And in the meantime, we weep when death strikes. But when death dares to laugh at us? We, we say with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Christianity, said John Stott, is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of of resurrection lies at its heart, if you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Liberty Baptist Church, you cannot afford to live like dead men and women, worshiping a dead Savior in the midst of a very dead world. Christ Christ is risen and we shall one day rise with him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us, forgive me for being so short-minded, to think, to be so superficial, to think that this is all there is. We live that way so often. Lord, change our mindset Show us, Lord, that empty tomb so that we have that future hope, not only in the resurrection of our own bodies, but in the glorification we will experience as we worship together around your throne and see that risen lamb. Amen.
0: Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by taking a moment of silent reflection.